So we are walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We will be in uh, the first part of chapter 5 today. Now, before we get started, I just want to say a couple things. Um, as I studied this week, some things uh, kind of laid heavy on my heart. And here's kind of how that goes. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 4, and, and, and Paul was uh, saying to the, the Thessalonians, I do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. So uh, there was some confusion in the church about those people that died before Jesus came back. And so they were like, ah, like, what's their state? Are they saved? Like, what's going on? Like, Jesus hasn't come back yet, and they're not here when he's going to come back. So there was a little bit of confusion going on there. So Paul, in his letter, uh, in chapter 4, said, I don't want you to be informed about those who have fallen asleep. So he writes them, and, and if you were, weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to what we said about what Paul had to say at that, in that last half of chapter 4. So in chapter 5, um, he shifts gears a little bit, but he's still talking about this, this, the return of Christ. Now, as I studied this week, I kind of thought, man, we're kind of the opposite. And here's what I mean. Um, Paul was writing to them in chapter 4 saying, I don't want you to be informed because there was this confusion. I don't really think we struggle with that. I don't think typically that you and I struggle with when a, a brother, a believing brother or sister dies, we don't typically, typically go, man, I don't really know where they are. Like, why did they die? They died before Jesus came back. I don't really know what's going on. I really have never had that conversation, right? But then Paul shifts gears. He says in chapter four, I want you to be informed. So he instructs them. And then in chapter five, he says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you. So he's like, okay, in chapter, like this part of uh, the return of Christ, you guys know what's up. You guys know what's going on. And as I studied this week, I kind of thought, we're kind of the opposite. Like, there is a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation, and uh, just a general lack of knowledge about the return of Christ in the church today. And so what I thought was interesting as I studied this week is just that fact that we don't really struggle with the things that the Thessalonians were struggling with in chapter 4, but I think in general, the things that he's a, a, a saying to them in chapter 5, we kind of struggle with at times. And so today's going to be a little bit different, um, perhaps a little bit technical. Um, and so I would just invite you to stay with me. If you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to open that to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we will get started because I have a lot of notes. All right, here we go. Chapter 5, if you could stand with me and we will read the words of God. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. These are the words of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. All right. So, again, last chapter, uh, the last part of chapter 4 that we covered last week, Paul's dealing with um, those who have fallen asleep, right? And so he kind of addresses that a little bit, as you saw in this passage. We'll get to that. Um, but in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he's reassuring them about their loved ones uh, who died in, in Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 4 to say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So that was the addressing that he did about those who had died before Christ returns. And so in chapter 5, he's addressing what will happen for those who are alive when Christ returns, right? So he's addressing the same thing for different people, right? Okay, so let's go back, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then destruction, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So what we're going to do for this section is we're going to go verse by verse through it, and we're going to explain what it is that Paul's trying to say. And hopefully by the end of this, there will be some clarity, all right? Because this is kind of confusing, because... Um, so here's some of the confusion. I'm just going to lay this out there. Some of the confusion uh, regarding the return of Christ. So what we read in chapter 4, uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Right? Now, does that sound... Okay, I, sometimes I think we overcomplicate some of these things. Like, does that sound like a secret rapture? Right? If you don't know what the rapture is, it's, like, it's, this, it's, it's this belief surrounding the return of Christ that, that, um, that Jesus is going to come back in secret, and all of a sudden, um, it, everybody's seen the movies. Left behind. Right? Okay? When I was a kid, they were called, there was another movie that was called Thief in the Night. Now, we're going to address that. So there's this misunderstanding, and I really believe this. Okay, this is what I grew up with. And so if some of you are like, whoa, 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 Sam, you're attacking something very sacred, I know. I know, because this is what I grew up with. The problem was that as I grew and as I read the Bible, I kind of went, I don't see it in here anywhere. And as I read the passages that people constantly looked at to say, yep, 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 this is this, this is this, I kind of went, it doesn't make any sense. And this is one of them, right? So the Lord will descend with a cry of command, with the sound of a trumpet. That's not quiet. That's not secret, right? There are some other passages that describe the, the sky being ripped open. Right in the stars, in the sun melting, that that no part of that sounds secret. But here in chapter five is where we get some of this when he says um, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So again, when I was a kid, there was a movie series called "A Thief in the Night," and that Jesus is this thief in the night that's coming to steal away. The problem is that um, we're kind of stretching things, aren't we? So here we go. We're going we're gonna to get into it, but we'll get there. 
I just want us to, I just want us to look at these, these verses and look in these chapters and see what they're actually saying. I don't think it's a secret code. And if we read these things in context, they kind of fit together. And it kind of becomes clear what he's trying to say. So, but concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. Okay? Concerning the times and the seasons. He uses two different Greek words there for time. The first one is chronos, which talks about uh, chronological time, right? We know that word. Most of us know that word. I think there's a watch company that's called Kronos. Very cool, right? There's a lot of churches that have Greek names. Um, and then the second one is kairos that has to do with special time. So uh, special moments in your life, right? When your kids graduate, your wedding day, these special moments. So he uses both of those words. The Greek language had two different words for time. Paul uses both of them. So he's describing a fullness of time, right? You have no need to have anything written to you when it's concerning the times and seasons, the fullness of time. You don't have anything to, to be written to you about this. You already know this. I also find it interesting. Uh, you see uh, the pastor's heart in Paul where he goes, you don't need to have anything written to you about this, and then he spends a chapter teaching them on it, right? Like that's kind of typical of pastors. Like, hey, you already know this, but let me just preach it to you again. Uh, I feel like I do that a lot, um, so I just thought that was interesting. Um, for you, are, you yourselves are, for, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, what does it mean that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night? I think he describes it fairly clearly. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I uh, were leaving on vacation. We used to live, if you're familiar with state, we used to live down in the swamp that's behind Dairy Queen. Um, so there's a park back there. And we lived in a cul-de-sac that was right next to the park. So our front yard, when you walked out our front door, the park was right there. Uh, and there was a path that went behind our house, and there was the park on the left side of our house, and then there was a house on the other side of our house. So it was a fairly public place to live. Um, and we were leaving to go on vacation that summer. And so I spent the afternoon uh, packing up the car in the driveway. It was on a Sunday, so there was lots of people at the park. Uh, and we're fairly certain that somebody probably watched us pack up. So uh, as we are leaving, um, the next morning, we, uh, my wife said, hey, the back window is open a crack in the kitchen. I said, it's fine. It'll let some fresh air in while we're gone. It's no big deal. Uh, so we left, and we were gone for a week. During that time, we were having a church garage sale to raise money uh, at our house. So there were some other people in the church that had keys to the house that were running the garage sale. And so Toby Hill, he's not here today, I don't think. Toby's here? No, I don't see him. Uh, showed up at our house the next morning and uh, sent me a text and said, Hey, did you take your TV with you? And I was like... Why would I take my TV on vacation with me? Right? And he was like, Your TV's gone. And so I thought, Ha ha ha, very funny. See you in a few days. Right? So one thing led to another. And, you know, we got on the phone. And I was like, Well, go in my room and open up this door and see if there's this and this and this in here. Turn, all this stuff's gone. So what happened was uh, we got home, and my wife had um, been drying some seeds in a jar on the kitchen window. And when we got home, those seeds were all over the kitchen floor. So somebody had opened that window fully, broke out the screen, climbed through the kitchen window, 
which was only about this wide, so it couldn't have been a big person, uh, and took everything of value out of our home and left a Cubs hat and a lighter on the living room floor. I don't know why, um, but there it was. Um, so when we read this passage and it says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, it's not describing Jesus as a thief. It's saying it's going to be unexpected, right? Nobody expects or schedules in, hey, um, if you're going to rob my house, could you do it next Friday when my kids are not home and that would be much more convenient for me? It's unexpected. It's unscheduled. It's not, it's not, you're not prepared for it. Now we can be prepared in terms of insurance and door locks and that kind of thing. But when, when 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is describing the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, he's not describing a thief, he's describing the way thievery happens. We were completely unexpected. Completely unexpected, to the point where I was like, nah, it's no big deal, we don't have to lock, to lock that back window. We were not expecting that to happen. If I had expected that to happen, I would have what? I would have locked the window. I would have shut the window. I would have locked it. I would have had somebody stay at the house, right? And so what he's describing here is the fact that people are unprepared for Christ to come back. Not people being stolen. Not a secret return, because we just saw in chapter 4 that his return will be announced rather loudly, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet, right? That's an announcement. And that the word there that's used for the return of Christ is this Greek word parousia. And nowhere in any Greek language is parousia used to describe a secret arrival, it is always used to describe the loud, announcing, welcoming of an arriving dignitary. Always. And so again, there's some misinformation here. There is a lack of understanding here. And I think, while this is not a salvation issue, and at the end of this sermon, if you are unconvinced about what I'm saying, that's okay. That's o- it's really Okay. But at the same time, as I read the end of chapter 4, and Paul says to them, I do not want you to be misinformed or uninformed. Man, I do not want us to be uninformed about these things. I want us to be informed about something that is incredibly important to us. Jesus coming back is kind of a big deal, right? And so when he says it's going to come like a thief in the night, I want us to be prepared. I do not want us to be unprepared for the return of our Savior. And so I'm obligated, as your pastor, to teach you these things. Now, uh, then he says, for when they are saying peace and safety. Does it sound like, sound like anywhere you know, right? We live in a fairly peaceful and secure society. The other thing that's interesting about this is that he's kind of describing uh, some other um, things in Jeremiah chapter 6. Verse 14, um, Jeremiah says that he, uh, God actually condemns those that are saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Again, that kind of sounds like the culture we live in. Look around. There's really not peace, right? You spend 30 seconds on Facebook to realize that. We don't live in peace, but everybody thinks that we do. Now, 
Here's where it gets really interesting. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is a really interesting passage of Scripture. And this is Jesus talking. And here's what he says. But concerning that day, what day? The return of Jesus, right? Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. So Jesus is saying, I don't know when I'm going to come back. Only the Father knows. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Kind of like what he just described in Jeremiah and what he just described in 1 Thessalonians, right? They're saying peace and safety when there really is none. They don't know that their doom is at the door. They are unprepared. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Remember that. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. When two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. Now this is another passage that people go, see, one will be taken and one will be left. He's talking about the rapture. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake. Right? Just what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. You see the parallels over and over and over. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, ah, there it is again, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. You see the parallels again, right? We're, we're to be sober, we're not to be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. And it goes on to describe him like cutting him in tiny pieces and handing him, right? I mean, it gets pretty graphic. So let's go back to verse 39, 40, and 41. He says, they were, they were, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Describing the day of the Lord that we're talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Let's go back to Genesis. Again, talking about the flood, because that's the, the parallel that he's using here. Genesis chapter 7, verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. This is describing the flood. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven. They were blotted out, right? Matthew 24 describes that as being swept away. They were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was what? Left. So do we want to be taken or do we want to be left? I don't want to get taken, right? Because what Matthew 24, what Jesus himself is describing when he says some will be taken is not a good thing, right? And he goes on in 24 in detail to describe what that looks like, getting chopped up into little tiny pieces. 
He's using some graphic description of the wrath of God. So it's important for us, and this might be technical, and you're like, what's the big deal here? The big deal here is I don't want you to be unprepared. It's really clear when you read the Bible plainly to see what it says, it kind of makes it clear what he's talking about. There is not. So here's kind of the way it's described, this idea of the rapture. So we're going to go through time, and then at some point in time, Jesus is going to come back and secretly take the church. And then all those who are left on the earth are going to be thrown into this seven-year tribulation that is just going to be utter chaos, and there's all these crazy things that are going to happen. And then at the end of that seven years, we will come back and Jesus will judge the earth. The problem, again, is that that's not described in Scripture. And the, the really interesting thing about this is that we can go back over and over and over and over throughout the Bible and see this kind of played out, right? Uh, if you go, the best one is if you go back and look at the book of Exodus. Where were the Israelites during the plagues? They were in, in Egypt, Right? And the Bible actually describes them being so angry with Moses because many of the plagues, not all of them, many of the plagues affected them just as much as they affected the Egyptians. When were they delivered? After. God carried them through the tribulation which God describes over and over and over and over and over and over constantly through the Bible to his people saying, you will go through trials, you will go through tribulations, this, 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 and yet we believe that, hey, God's going to save us from that and everybody else is going to go through it and we're not. It's just, it's just nowhere to be found. And there's like two or three passages that we twist to try to make sound like this because we're a Raid. And I get it. Because when you read the description of what's coming before the world ends, it's not good. And another interesting this thing, this is completely not in any of the passages. Does anybody know when this idea of the rapture came into existence? About 200 years ago. So you never hear the, the early church fathers in any of the writings uh, or any, in the Reformation, any of these early church fathers talking about this idea of the rapture. It came into existence about 200 years ago. And I don't want you guys to be uninformed. You can be, disagree with me, but disagree with me based on what you believe the Bible says, not because your pastor when you grew up that you really respect taught you this. And don't believe it just because, don't believe this just because I'm telling you. Go to the Bible and see what it says. I'm telling you, as I have read the Bible, this, I'm convinced that the day of the Lord is one event. Jesus Christ will come back. We will see him. The entire world will see him physically with a shout, with a cry of command, with the sound of a trumpet. Now, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. I've never been in labor. I've watched someone be in labor a couple of times. The first time it happened when we were sitting at uh, Red Robin. And a friend of mine that was there eating with us, we started making fun of her because we, I mean, like, come on, it's not that big of a deal, right? 
And then we get to the car, and I was like, this is kind of a big deal. It was, was it expected? No, right? Now, modern medicine, we can schedule C-sections, and we can kind of alleviate some of what he's talking about here. But in the first century, uh, labor was not only extremely dangerous, right? The mortality rates in pregnant women and infants was extremely, very, very high. You didn't know when it was going to happen. Sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant one, and they will not escape. The picture that we get here is people suddenly alarmed, completely unprepared, looking for a way out and finding none. Revelation 6 describes this exact same scenario. Starting in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? In 1 Thessalonians, this is what Paul is describing. This is the day that Paul is describing sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. Right? And Revelation describes them seeing Jesus and wanting mountains to fall on them. They're they're so despairing of seeing him for who he really is. But all of that isn't Paul's main point. Right? In chapter 4, he says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Again, another illustration of that this thing, this coming of the day of the Lord, is not Jesus stealing people away. Evidently, there's a way for us to be prepared, right? You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let, us be, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and be sober. Let us be prepared. Let us be vigilant. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The day, that word there in the ESV that's translated surprise is the same word that we saw in Matthew 24 that's, that's translated taken. It's the same word, katalambelo. It's the same word. So he's saying, you are not in darkness for that day to take you like a thief. So light and darkness in the Old and New Testament is, are constantly used as metaphors of good and evil, order and chaos, security and danger, joy and sorrow, truth and untruth, life and death, salvation and condemnation. So we can see very clearly what Paul's trying to say here. We are not in the darkness. We are of the light. He doesn't say we 
walk in the light. He says that later, but what does he say? He says, we are of the light. You are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And again, the, the, the Greek word that he's using there means literally to be. So that word of is not describing action, it's describing identity. This is who we are. We are children of light. We are not children of the darkness. We are not of the darkness. We are of the light. Matthew 5 Verse 16 says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John chapter 12, And yet a little while while the light is with you, who's the light? Jesus, right? While the light is with you, walk while you have the light. That darkness doesn't overtake you. He who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become children of light. So the light is Jesus. So when it says we are of the light, it says we are of Jesus. We are in Jesus. He is not just who we follow and what we do. He is our identity. And this is interesting. He goes on to describe what that looks like, to stay awake and to be sober, right? A couple, means, a couple meanings of the word sober there is, first, it has obviously to do with avoidance of intoxication, but secondly, it has to do with a kind of behavior that we associate with sobriety, right? Does, you know, if you describe a drunk person versus describing a sober person, you can kind of get that meaning. Uh, a, a sober person is more clear-headed, more analytical, more understanding, right? We are in our right mind. So when he's describing this, he's saying, hey, we need to be prepared. We need to think. We need to act. We need to stay uh, in our ability to act because we belong to the day, because we are of the day. Now, he's describing this and saying we, we are of the day, and here's another, here's another interesting way he does this. In verse 8, he says, putting on the breastplate of love, faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Anybody know where this comes from? Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, where Yahweh is described as putting on a, a, a righteous, righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation on his head. So the description of Yahweh in Isaiah 59 is yet now by Paul to people that would understand because they knew the scriptures, he's being using it to describe them. Why? Because they're of the light. They are identified with Jesus. That's why that's why. Uh, that we are to shine our light so people might see him because our light is his. It's not ours. We belong to it. We are of it. But the source of that light is not us. It's him. And yet we are identified with him. So we are not in the darkness. We are not unprepared. We are prepared for Christ to return. And so what we see here described as Jesus comes back to earth is a day of incredible joy for those of us who know him. Incredible joy. In fact, 2 Thessalonians actually <clears throat> describes us being, um, us being set free while others are destroyed. For us, it's a day of incredible joy. For the rest of the world, it's a day of destruction, and judgment. So we should be torn when we think about it. 
because there's not a person in this room that doesn't know someone that they love dearly that doesn't know Jesus. And not only are we to be prepared, we should intensely desire the world around us to be prepared as well. And this is why I think that this is an important distinction to make, and it's important that we understand what the Bible says about the return of Christ. Because most people that think, yeah, the, the rapture's coming, the church is going to go away, and then everybody else is going to get a second chance. Nope. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And I want us to be prepared. I want us to be ready. In verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. So here's where some people go, See, we're not destined for wrath. We're not destined to go through hard. Are hard things the wrath of God? That's being described specifically here? Of course not. Of course not. Again, look at the book of Exodus. The wrath of God that we see is described in two ways in, in, in the book of Exodus, in the story of the Israelites being set free. The angel of death, right? And this is an unbelievable picture of Christ saving his people through his blood. Remember the, the Hebrews? If you don't know the story, you can go back and read it. It's incredible. Uh, God tells Moses, the angel of death is coming. If you want to be saved, you take a spotless lamb, you butcher it, and you spread its blood over your doorway. And the angel of death will pass you over. A foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus that will save us from destruction. So that's the first way we see destruction and the wrath of God described in Exodus. The second one is as the Israelites pass through the sea, what happens to the Egyptians? They are swallowed up by the sea. This is an incredibly difficult journey for the Hebrews people, for the Israelites. But they are delivered through it as we are delivered through trials and tribulations. I do not want you to be uninformed. And I want the, the, the informed nature of your heart to motivate you to evangelism. Because the people that live next to you, the people that live around you, the people you work with, and a lot of the people in your family are unprepared. And there are no second chances. God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to the obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live to him. So, okay, he's hearkening back to chapter 4. Whether we have died before he comes back or we're alive when he comes back, we live in him. There's no distinction there, whether we are alive when he comes back or whether we have died when, before he comes back. So, Therefore, right? What's it therefore? To describe what, in light of this, what do we do? We encourage one another. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Remember what he said at the end of chapter four? Comfort one another with these words. It's actually the same word used here. We are to build up, comfort, encourage one another in the truth that Jesus is coming back and we need to be prepared. 
Again, this is why we encourage you guys to gather and gather and gather and gather. Sunday morning, small groups, as much as you can, gather together, encourage one another. Why? So that we are not unprepared. So that we are not found to be sleeping. We are not found to be uh, drunk. Again, not really, but he's describing a state of being here. A careless state of being that we are not called to. We are called to a state of readiness. We are called to live lives of purpose and care. Build one another up just as you are doing. Listen. This is something that they were already doing, right? They were loving one another, and he described, he appealed to them to love one another more. They are already encouraging one another and building one another up because he says that this is what you are doing. But he exhorts them to do it more. Continue on, press in, encourage one another. So our appeal today is to press in. Don't be satisfied. Encourage one another all the more. Love one another all the more. Press in all the more so that we might be prepared and so our light might shine before men and they might see who? Jesus. So that they will not be caught unaware. So that they will be prepared for the coming of our Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And as we gather here today, as we, as we sit here, Father, we are not worthy of what you have given us. We are worthy of your judgment. We are worthy of your wrath. But Father, you are so loving. You are so gracious. Father, we ask that you would help us to love the world as you have loved us. God, I pray that our light would shine before men. That the world around us would see you. Help us to be awake, to be sober, to be prepared, Father, in the way that we live. Thank you for saving us. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.